Genesis 37 is what will be um, this morning. And what we'll see uh, through this series, and the, the, the big idea is what we're trying to grasp, is that God is um, sovereign over all. Uh, and another way to say that is uh, God has planned out all the details of your life, good or bad. I mean, let me even go even further how to say that even more. There's not a section of your life that God was not absent. There's not a section of your life where God is not the first cause of something that has happened to you. And so what we're going to see is this big sovereign king, sovereign Lord over all. Because what we'll see in Joseph's life is the hiddenness and the hidden hand of God working out every detail of his life so that he would get the praise and honor and glory. And so what I've done is I've taken this sermon, I've got two other ones that we're going to talk about. And the first one is today, we're going to talk about how God is sovereign over circumstances. Next week, we're going to look at how God is sovereign over choices. In the third week, we're going to look at how God is sovereign over consequences. And if you know me, I normally don't do alliteration, meaning I don't start with the same letter of things. But hey, I did it today. I'm really proud of myself. Circumstances, choices, consequences. So, um, but we're going to talk about circumstances today. And where we're at this morning is we see in Genesis 37 a big family. And I don't know about you, but uh, I, I come from a big family. I have uh, I have three brothers and I have two sisters. And what I've started to notice in when you have a large family, especially you have half brothers and stepsister. I, mean, I have all that. Um, there's, there's typically a lot of drama that's involved. And so here we see there's a lot of drama here in the passage. And some of you say, look, I only have one sibling and I have a lot of drama in, in my family. And so but here's the thing. With me, uh, I had tons of drama growing up. And my brother, Randy, I am closest to now. We talk uh, almost every other day. He lives in Wilmington. He's a chef. I'm a pastor. I don't know how that happened, but growing up in the same house, I can't cook anything except for on the grill, um, but he is like a, a great chef, and we're really close. And, but the problem with that was I hated him growing up. I despised Randy. I remember being a little kid, and uh, he was talking on the phone with his girlfriend. I got so mad, I ripped his Iron Maiden poster off of his, of his uh, door. And if you grew up in the 80s, you know what that is and uh, how significant that is. And so, But we always had tension. Um, there was times that he would throw parties, and he would throw humongous parties when he was supposed to be watching me. Mom and dad were out of town, and what I did is I just learned how to learn, learn how to make money off of it. And so I'd say, listen, if you don't give me $5 every time you come back from work, I'm going to tell mom and dad. And so he was a waiter this time at a restaurant, and he was coming back, and he would give me a percentage of what he made every time he came back. And I was only eight years old, but I, I learned early on how to be a cap. I mean, I was an entrepreneur then. I mean, that's what I was trying to figure out how to be. I felt like a mobster. I mean, it, it just felt incredible to have that control over someone nine years older than me. Um, other times, I would do mean tricks to him. And, and he's just, he still is. He's a really nice person. Um, he's, a, he's a gullible person too. And so I loved it early on when I picked up on that. And so, um, you know, this is when I was a kid, I had uh, somebody my size had to wear what you call slim fit jeans. Um, and so I had to wear, I was wearing those slim fit Wranglers. And I told Randy, because Randy would try to help me, you know, get my bath. And I was like seven years old and I didn't need help getting a bath. I just wanted to torture him. And I'd say, Randy, I can't take my pants off. Can you help me? And I couldn't take my pants off. I was acting like I couldn't take my pants off. And the goal was to get him to sit on the edge of the bathtub. And so he's trying to, you know, help me pull my pants. And I just shoved him in the bathtub. And he's 
fall down. He follows me through the house wet, soaking wet, and he, he, he would give me a beating for it. I mean, he would just beat me, you know, unrecognizable, but it was worth it to me to torture him and watch him go through all that pain. And so Randy and I, we've had feuds, I mean, long feuds and battles, and I don't know why this is, but now he's the closest to me. And I think perhaps the reason why we're the closest is because we went through all that stuff together. We went through all that uh, those things together. Of course, I'm just telling you my side of the story. Um, maybe when you meet him, he'll tell you his side. But um, but one of the things I, I've noticed, and I'm not sure what this is, but perhaps the reason why we get along is because of all that. And, and what you're going to see here in this passage is that all the drama, all the issues that we see that happen in Genesis 37 is to draw Joseph, who's the main character that we're going to see, closer to God. And then, hopefully, through all this drama that we see in this passage, it would also draw us closer to God, that we would see him who can get us through difficult circumstances. So let's just see what God has for us today in Genesis 37. Start with me in verse 1. Jacob, who is Joseph's father, what we'll see today, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a a boy with the sons of Bilah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. So first of all, here's what I want you to see. What you have here is a story within a story. The story of Joseph is a story within a story. And what we have is his, his father, his name is Jacob, and he's also called in other places in Genesis, Israel. So God tells Jacob he wants his name to also be Israel. So sometimes you would see, like it says, Israel loved his son. It's talking about Jacob. It's, it's a different name for Jacob, not necessarily the nation of Israel. Are you tracking with that? So he's got two kind of names that he's known as in this passage. So sometimes it will say Jacob, sometimes it will say Israel. It's the same guy. And what you're, having, what you're seeing here is a story within a story, meaning that earlier on in Genesis, God tells Jacob this humongous promise. And Jacob clung to this promise. Let me just show you uh, the times that the Lord appeared to Jacob. We have, first of all, in Genesis 28, verse 3, it says this. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may uh, become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abram or Abraham. Notice what happens in a few chapters later when he comes to him a second time. It says this, Genesis 35. Verse 9, it says, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanarium. Padanarium, there it is, and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. 
No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he, shall, uh, so he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. There it is again. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And the kings shall come from your own body. And the land that I gave Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give you the land to your offspring after you. So notice what God is telling Jacob, who's the father of Joseph. He's saying, from you, there will be a community of worshipers in the company of many nations. And what we see later in the New Testament, it's every tribe, tongue, and nation will believe. Little did he know he's talking about us, but that's who he's talking about. He's talking about us here today gathered from Abraham, from Jacob's seed. We will worship the King of kings and Lord of lords. Little little did he know that's what he's talking about. And so Jacob took it among himself, like I am going to be this figure. I'm going to be someone that everyone's going to look to and everyone's going to possibly worship. I'm going to be this main figure. And he, he wasn't talking about Jacob. He wasn't talking about Abraham. He was talking about Jesus. But Jacob took it among himself. He's talking about me. I'm going to be this key figure. I'm going to be this big deal. And so when you see this story, it doesn't seem like God is going to do this, right? I mean, right out of the gate, you see a hatred between brothers. And you're saying, this is going to end up pointing everyone to God. This is going to end up being something that people are going to talk about from ages and ages to come. This is the story that we have? Because it seems like it would just go well. It seems like it would fit perfectly the way we imagine in this thing to be. It would look like the Partridge family or something. This is the way it should be. Not this drama between brothers. But, but notice what we'll see is that we have a God who fulfills his promises against all odds. Now, let me show you the odds that, that seem to be at work here with this promise that he gives Jacob. You have these brothers, and they hate each other. And most of the time when you read this, you think Joseph is this innocent sweetheart of a child with just a rainbow jacket. That's the way we've kind of seen it. He just got a Skittles jacket. But what's wrong with him, right? He's a nice boy, right? And he's mean brothers. But what I want you to show you is that he's not exactly that innocent. So you, what you have is Joseph is working in the pasture with his brothers. And normally what you have in the Old Testament, when God begins to speak to someone, when God begins to speak, uh, let's just say a prophet. Most of the time prophets are out in the field and they're shepherding. And he gives them a revelation from God. And that they would have this enormous task to take on. But what you have here in verse 2, the very thing that Joseph is reporting is not some revelation from God. Not this amazing task to take on. Rather, it's a bad report. It's almost as if he's like a tattletale in some sense. People would say, well, this isn't necessarily a bad report because the Hebrew word, it means it could mean, when it talks about a bad report, it could mean uh, true or false. But what we see, even in Proverbs 10, verse 18, it uses the same phrase and actually means slander. And so you have this younger brother that his father loves and adores, and he's talking junk about the older brothers. He's talking about how they're working. They're not working right. And this is the first thing that we see about Joseph. He's already talking smack about his brothers. And then he has this level of favoritism toward 
Joseph. Jacob has this favoritism toward his son. Now, the text actually says that Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his sons. And he loved him so much that the the passage says he gave him a rainbow-colored coat. Now, you think about that, and you think that is not very manly, right? He's wearing a rainbow-colored coat. I mean, what is that? Well, the, the text actually says it, what it actually means is a, it's like a coat with long sleeves. But I don't want you to get an idea that he's wearing like a Snuggie or anything like that. It's, it's, it's what it is. It's actually like a royal garment. This is a royal garment that his father bestows on him. And basically what I want you to see is this, it's not work clothes. These guys are out working in the field, and he shows up in the royal garment. I want you to imagine this. These older brothers are out getting sweaty and dirty. They're wearing their Carhartt jumpers. He rolls up in an Audi, right? He's, he's jamming out the Maroon 5. He's got a pink polo from J. Crew. He's got checkered shorts. He's got Ray-Bans. Right? He shows up. He's like, my dad says you're not doing, I'm going to tell my dad you're not doing a good job, right? I mean, he's like the epitome of a Brad Paisley punchline, right? And so here he is. His brothers are out working in the field, and he's this preppy, favored child, and he's just giving bad reports about his brothers. And this isn't the first time that we see in the Bible where Jacob gives his son, Joseph, favoritism. We actually see in Genesis 35, there's a time where Jacob, and he had many wives, but he had a favorite wife. So he favored a lot of things. He favored his wife, Rachel, and he favored uh, their son, Joseph. He had other wives, and that's how he had so many kids. Um, And so what he did when he was in danger, he took his wife, Rachel, his favorite wife, and he took his favorite son, Joseph, and he hid them, and then he let his older sons and his uglier wives out to get hurt. And he just protected his son and his wife that he loved. And so here you have a lot of issues. Isn't this a lot of drama for a story? You got a dad with a bunch of wives and he doesn't like any of them. He's got a dad with a bunch of sons. He doesn't like any of them. He's got one wife and one son that he likes and the other ones he kind of are afterthoughts. So can you really blame Joseph for being spoiled? I mean, you, you think about this, and you think about a child celebrity or a child athlete. And when you always see, like, a talented athlete who's a child or a talented actor or actress as a child, you, you rarely think, well, I hope they get good movies so they can keep their career up, or I hope they don't get injured so they can continue to be good ballers or good whatever. What you also all, often think of, I hope they can handle the fame. Is it not right? You always wonder, well, they're probably going to lose their mind, right? Justin Bieber lost his mind before he started, right? But what... That's aside the point. But most of the time, we think they're just going to lose their mind. Let's look at all this tension. I mean, it, the, the passage actually says, verse seven, uh, uh, in the beginning, it says, Joseph is only 17 years old. And so here we have Jacob giving him favoritism. And we learn even earlier in Genesis, Jacob received favoritism from his father as well. You ever heard the phrase, Jacob, I love, Esau, I hated? So this is a repeating pattern of sin, sinful legacy that continues throughout this family. Now notice what happens next, because this will irritate you. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, 
they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And you're going, man, can you tone it down a notch, right? Seriously, this is insane. And his brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and he told it to his brothers. He just doesn't get it. Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon, the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Wow, I've got 11 brothers too. That's interesting. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. And what you're going to see, it's very interesting. Can you think of one place in scripture where brothers got along? I can't, I mean, right away, right after the fall of man, you have two brothers and one of them kills the other one. This is a consistent pattern in scripture. And what you're seeing is God is giving Joseph these dreams and his brothers are hating him for it. Verse 12, but his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel, or Jacob, said to Joseph, are you not your are you not uh, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to them, Here I am. And he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he and he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him. What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away. I hear them say, let, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them at Dothan. And they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. You notice how they're a little sarcastic here? Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to him, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So what you have here is he goes on a rescue mission to find his brothers. He went some 20 miles out of the way when he sovereignly found this man to tell Joseph where his brothers were. So we do have some act that he does care for his brothers, do we not? And then when his brothers see him as he finds them, they wanted and they plotted 
to kill him. And let me, let me give you a little bit about Reuben because Reuben is the one who wants to defend his brother. Reuben has severe daddy issues, to say the least. Uh, Reuben uh, got so angry at his father Jacob at one point in Genesis that he, in order to get back at him, he ended up sleeping with his, one of his dad's concubines. I mean, can you imagine the awkwardness at Christmases in this family? They have some crazy drama going on. And so perhaps some would say that maybe what Reuben is doing is because he knows how much Jacob cares for his son Joseph. Perhaps what he's trying to do is by sparing Joseph's life, he is actually honoring his father. Maybe he's trying to get in good with with dad. And so what you see is they begin to think through what to do next because they say, well, we're not going to say a fierce animal killed him. So what we have is verse 23. And so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Now, I like how they did this because what you're doing is you're seeing the contrast between him going from riches to rags. Most stories are from rags to riches, but this is riches to rags. He's wearing this nice coat, and now he's thrown in a pit, and they even give you a description of the pit where there's no water. And then what we see next is verse 25, and they sat down to eat. Now, notice the flippancy in their brothers. They're throwing him in the pit, and now they're just having like hummus sandwiches. This is not a big deal. And that just shows you how careless they are because I guess slave trading works up an appetite of some sort. And so here they are, they're sitting down to eat and they, looking up, they saw a caravan of the Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with the camels bearing gum balm uh, and, and, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood. Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Uh, the, the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, and they lifted him out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, which, by the way, is the average cost of what you would sell Uh, a slave for. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Here you have these brothers, and they commit a heinous crime. You have Judah, which by the way, when you see the name Judah, your ears should perk up because it's going to show up later in the series. That's an important name. He becomes a capitalist. He says, we can just make money off this, and we'll just make the average of what it is to sell our brother. We'll just sell him into slavery. And by the way, this was just like murdering someone, because what you're doing is, is you're taking someone's life. Actually, in this culture, this, this, would, this law against selling someone into slavery was equal to uh, how they would frown upon murder and how they would treat you accordingly if, if you were to break this sort of law. And so here you have... This plot that is beginning to thicken, and notice what happens next. Verse 29. And when Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? And they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe into the blood 
And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it out to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether or not it is your son's robe. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. And Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Joseph tore his, or Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. And his sons and all of his daughters rose up to confront him, but he refused to be confronted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now I want you to see this because you have Joseph. It says that he says, This is my son's robe, and it says that he's mourned for many, many days. Now, here's what I want you to see, because for Jacob to lose his son, it's almost as if he loses his only son. Because what you're seeing here that begins to unfold throughout Genesis is Joseph lo- or Jacob loves his son Joseph so much because of this prophecy that has been given to generations to generations to come. So for his son to say he has these dreams that all these things are going to happen, this is very familiar to him. And so for him, if Joseph dies, then the dreams die. And it's almost as if Jacob is living vicariously through his son. If you can think about eastern North Carolina for a second, we have one of probably the most athletic cities in the east coast. And what you see is often... Dads who love baseball so much that they want their son to go pro. And they begin to tell them, you have a chance to go pro. And they're like eight years old, right? They're living vicariously through their son. They're, just, they're trying to work on his, 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 his fielding. They're trying to work on his throwing, his batting, and all this stuff. And they're trying to, you want you to be a switch hitter. And he's like, they're working on all these things. And their goal is they're going to throw a 90 miles an hour fastball before they get out of high school, right? And it just becomes this crazy dream that they have for their kids. And I see it all the time. We see it through uh, academics as well. We want to live vicariously through our kids. We want to puff them up in this way. If, if something doesn't go right, then the dream dies. And so for Jacob, for his son to die, then the dream dies. I mean, if you even look up in verse 3, what you see him call him is he is the son of old age. And what he's doing is he's linking it back to what we even see in Genesis 21 when God or Isaac is described as the son of old age. And so it's tying it back to the promise that God made with Abraham that you would be the father of many nations. And he's thinking, my son could be that same way. My son could be elevated that same way. My name will be elevated in that way. And so Jacob idolized his son. He idolized his son. And this is his idol being crushed right before him. And he's mourned, and his own family tries to get him out of the pit, and he refused to be confronted by them. He doesn't want to deal with it. This is too much. And the narrator, what he does in verse 36, is he just tells us that Joseph is, in fact, safe. It says, Meanwhile, the Midianites, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, we'll pick up there next week. But I'm going to tell you, he's safe, right? But here's what I want to show you that's happening in 
chapter 37 of Genesis. Because what we're going to see is the hidden hand of God at work in spite of very chaotic circumstances. Uh, First of all, let me just show you what is seemingly coincidental. Jacob needed to send Joseph to check on his brothers. So that's the first thing that happens. He needed, his, his, he needed Jake, uh, Joseph to check on his brothers. So Joseph then had to meet the man who told him that his brothers had gone to Dothoth. That was a coincidence, seemingly. To our eyes, it's a coincidence. And then if the brothers stayed in Shechem, Joseph could have easily found them, but they wouldn't have been on the, on the main camel route down to Egypt. So this is a sovereign place that they have been put near the main camel route down to Egypt. And Dothan was on a main camel route. And so if people were traveling to Egypt, this is where they would go. And so the coincidence seemingly is that you would, if you're sitting on that road, it would take days, sometimes weeks to find anyone traveling toward Egypt. And the very moment that Joseph shows up and he finds his brother's is near the moment that this caravan is traveling toward Egypt. You call that a coincidence? And then what you see in the very moment that they make this decision about what to do with Joseph, because his brother Reuben wants to protect him so much, the very moment that they make this decision, where is Reuben? He's not there. He's absent. Is that a coincidence? So you have all of these events that are taking place because here's what has to happen. Joseph has to get to Potiphar's house for the rest of the events to unfold. But what do you see here? Because you don't see a lot of good events happening in order for God to fulfill his promises. You actually have bad events happening. You actually have chaotic drama. You have sin. You have betrayal. You have denial. You have broken hearts over and over, and all of these things are happening, and and I mean lies and deceit, and now you're saying God is going to use this to complete his purposes? God is going to seemingly coincidentally put these things together so that he would fulfill his promises. This just seems bizarre to me that he would do such a thing. It doesn't even seem like something God would do. And then you say, With all this drama in his family, with all the tension between Joseph and his brothers, why on earth would he tell a 17-year-old this massive dream that people are going to bow down and worship him? Why would God tell a 17-year-old that with already drama going on in his family? Why would he do that? It seems like if he wanted peace in the family, he would have let that happen maybe 21st birthday or something, right? But no, he does it now. Why, was, why does he do that? Let me just give you the easy, quick answer first, and I'll work backwards from there. He's displaying that he is God. That's what he's doing. Through all the chaos, through all the hurt, through all the pain, through all the betrayal, he's displaying that he is God. Do you think God was surprised by how Joseph's brothers would respond? Absolutely not. The brothers thought that by putting Joseph into slavery, they were going to crush the dreams of their brother Joseph when in actuality what they're doing is actually aiding the hand of God. 
to fulfill his promises. Do you get that? You see that? Very interesting. Because you're thinking, they're trying to stop God from working, and this is actually God's way of working. It's through them. Through their sinfulness, through their deceit, he's using this to get Joseph exactly where he wants him to be. And so we see this irony when we step back and look, and it seems like God is careless, that God is caught by surprise when, in fact, God is the first cause and God is the one working behind the scenes to make these things happen. So the question that is asked, if that's the case, then certainly God would be responsible for the evil acts. Certainly God is the one who caused evil to happen. But we know because of New Testament writing, that is not the case. I mean, if you look in James 1, verse 13, it says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin, it is fully grown and it brings forth death. Which tells us this, our sin is our fault. God is not responsible for our sin, yet he can work out our sin for his good and his purposes. So let me explain it this way by explaining the passage that we just covered. Based on what we see in this chapter, you have a spoiled child who gets an amazing promise that he would be a leader. Based on what you see in Joseph's character, is he able to handle what God had set out for him at that point in his life? No way. There's no way that this preppy, spoiled kid could do this task. So what God has to do in his life is to put him through the ringer. And the very acts that we think are going to happen next, that he is going to live this life of pedigree, of being above people his whole life, but what God does is he puts him through difficult circumstances in order to prepare him for what he has in store for him later down the road. And this is the hidden hand of God. And so I want to tell you that this morning because some of you are in this world right now where God has something planned for you. God has something in store for you. And by the way, you'll never know the sovereign hand of God and what that is. You'll never know what that is. You can see the moral will of God and what that is because it's in the word of God. But most of the time, the sovereign will of God, we see in the rearview mirror as we drive past. Say, oh, that was God doing that. That was God working. So we don't know what the sovereign hand of God is. We don't know what that's going to be. But, but here's what we do know, that he is sovereign overall, that he's constantly at work. And he's got some plan for you, if you're a believer, to where your life will ultimately point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what's happening here in the lives of people at Integrity, I believe, who are going through suffering and difficulty, he's doing that so that he can prepare you for greater things that will point to his name. 
and that will complete his purposes. So look, I can't gauge every single person in this room. If you've not been through suffering, you will, if you're a believer, because it's promised. Maybe you're just coming out of suffering. Maybe you're right in the middle of it. But I can promise you this, in the same way that he worked in the life of our friend Joseph to complete his purposes, to give him difficult things, to give him trials, suffering, lies, deceit, God, who's sovereign over all, has placed those things in your life as well so that you would love him more. And he would prepare you for something greater in your life. And when I say greater, I don't mean material things. I mean the joy that we find in Christ. If you've been here before, um, you will rarely hear a sermon where I don't quote Philippians 1.6. And it says, the Apostle Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. Which means this, if you're a believer in Christ, if you believe in the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect, sinless life, that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for our sins and that he rose from the grave and he conquered the penalty of Satan's sin and death and we put our hope and trust in him by repenting of our sins and believing only in his name and his glory and his fame. If we believe in that truth today, then we have this hope that he who began a good work in you, in you who saved you out of your sin, who gave you a new heart, he will compl- finish it to the day you receive your inheritance in Christ, which means it's a small verse, but it has massive implications, which means the way that he often does that is not through just good things, but also through bad things. That God would put you through suffering and grant you suffering as a gift so that you would see the gospel more clearly. In Philippians 1 12, Paul says on the same note, same chapter, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, and he's talking about massive suffering and persecution, has really served to advance the gospel. And so I can't get into all the details of what I really want to cover because we got weeks and weeks, or two weeks into this, but what I want to show you this morning is this, that if you're a believer in Jesus, There is no amount of suffering that he put in your life that, first of all, you can't handle, but also that won't eventually point to Christ. If you look at the chaotic life of Jacob and Joseph and their family, you think about your own family. Maybe you have hurt from your past, maybe from your own family, maybe from a friend, maybe from a loved one. Maybe you've lost a loved one. But if you're a believer the hope that you have in Christ is that you are literally invincible in this sense. There's nothing in your life that won't eventually bring greater joy in Christ. That will happen to you. Nothing. And that's the hope that we have in Christ. And if I were to explain the difference between a believer and a non-believer, most of the time we think a believer goes to heaven, a non-believer goes to hell, and that is the only difference. That is not the difference at all. Actually, heaven and hell is a, almost a side note of the conversation when we talk about reading the Bible and what it means to have abundant life in Christ. Abundant life in Christ means that 
You, when you suffer, when you face doubt and persecution and hardship, that you, that God will use that to bring you closer to him. But a non-believer, they, they do not have that promise. They don't have it. Because we can't say God has a perfect plan in this situation. We don't know that if you don't know Christ. Because that plan could be, this is it, and this is the closest to heaven that you're going to get. This suffering is, man, at least you're not in hell. Like, that's all we could say to a non-believer. But for a believer, this is the closest to hell that we will get. And the sufferings that we face ultimately are going to bring us closer to him. So we can respond in joy because he's sovereign over all things, good and bad. Some say God is only sovereign over the good things. Really? Because that stinks. I kind of need him to be sovereign over the bad things too. I need him to be there when things go wrong. I need to know that he's the king of kings and that he's still on the throne. I need to know that. But fortunately, he is. And if we're a believer, we can have joy in suffering knowing that he sovereign king over all of our circumstances. Let's pray. God, my prayer is this morning that you would